Amen. Amen. What a time of worship tonight. Always enjoy gathering on Sunday evenings as we worship together and come to study the Word of God. Find in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 4. We're in a verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation, and tonight we come to Revelation chapter 4. Last time I spoke just on the first couple of verses. Tonight we're going to cover the entire chapter. And in this chapter tonight, I'm preaching on this subject, a glimpse of heaven. The Apostle John is given a glimpse of heaven. And here we're able to peel back the curtain and look beyond this earth into heaven. And we are given a glimpse, a majestic, awe-inspiring, glorious glimpse into what awaits for all of those who've placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. John here describes a beautiful, wonderful, remarkable scene. This reminds us that we are pilgrims, we are sojourners, that we're just passing through here on earth, and that our eternal home awaits us one day in glory. Revelation chapter 4, we'll read all 11 verses. Begin reading with me in verse 1. John writes, After this I looked, and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were four and twenty elders, twenty-four thrones. And seated on those thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is It is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who's seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their thrones before the throne. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by you, your will they existed and were created. Remember tonight, the power is in the perfect Word of God. There is an unprecedented fascination with the end times, and an unprecedented fascination these days among both Christians and non-Christians with the afterlife. You are probably familiar with multiple books that have been written in recent years about people who have visited the afterlife. Christians who apparently, for whatever reason, were uh, recording of their trip to heaven and then came back to earth. Or someone actually wrote a book who was a non-Christian about an experience with hell. Books on the afterlife or near-death experiences and books about angels. All of these spiritual things top the bestsellers list. They'll have television programs and specials on certain news 
news programs to highlight these sorts of books, the mysterious realm of the the supernatural. Sometimes they'll focus on a near-death experience. Sometimes they'll talk about angels and their role. And all of that to say, we have in in John's revelation... His vision that God gave him here in Revelation chapter 4, we have one of the most detailed descriptions of heaven that exists anywhere. In fact, in John chapter, in Revelation chapter 4, John is given his second vision, and here in this vision, we are given a glimpse of heaven. And in contrast to all of the best-selling books of the most recent years, John's account records a accurate description of what will be going on in heaven one day. You know, the Bible tells us that there were two people in the Bible who received a vision of heaven. One was the Apostle Paul. But the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he was not allowed or permitted to speak of his trip to heaven. Did you know that? Paul speaks in the third person in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4, and he says, And he heard these things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. But John was caught up into heaven, summoned into heaven, and given a glimpse, and John was permitted, John was able to write. And here in Revelation chapter 4 and on into chapter 5, John records his vision that the Lord gave him. In Revelation 4 and 5, we have a detailed description of the vision of heaven. Interesting. In his first vision, in chapter 1, he saw the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verses 12 through 19. And now in his second vision, it it is very similar to what the Apostle Paul may have seen, or even what Ezekiel describes in the Old Testament. John sees a glimpse of heaven. And here in Revelation 4 and 5, we have the most complete, the most informative in all of Scripture view of heaven. Through John's vision, we have the privilege of previewing the place that will be our eternal home. Notice, first of all, a significant transition. I want you to remember two words that are very important that begin chapter 4, after this. If you'll remember from our last sermon, those two words are significant and they mark a transition in this book. I'm sure you remember from our discussion of Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19 that there are three divisions of the book of Revelation. And the book itself gives its own divine outline. The book describes those things which are, those things which were, and those things which will be. The Bible talks specifically about past things. That's represented by John's vision of Christ in Revelation chapter 1. Present things, which represents the church age of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And you and I are still in the church age. And then prophetic things, things that will come, beginning with Revelation chapter 4 and all the way to the end of the book to Revelation chapter 22. And so if Revelation 1.19 is the divine outline for the book of Revelation, then Revelation 4 begins this grand division, the third division of the book, and ushers us into those things that are to take place after this. In fact, when John was summoned up into heaven seems to illustrate what, what happens to God's people when the church age ends. There's a significant transition that occurs at the end of the church of Laodicea, the church that's lukewarm, the church that's weak, anemic, and ineffective, the church that's not making a difference in the world. And then, right the next moment, the Bible says, after 
this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. So what's happening after this? Specifically meaning once the church age is over, the judgment that God has stored up and the wrath that he will pour out upon the earth will begin. Notice the passage begins and ends with that phrase after this. Verse 1 begins with the phrase after this. It ends with the phrase after this. These words signal to us what John is about to see and the vision that he is about to experience. Look at verse 1. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first verse The first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, not only is this a transition, but what you'll notice as we study the book of Revelation is John uses a phrase like that or a phrase similar to that to describe a vision that he receives. It moves from one point to the next. And so he uses phrases like, After this, or after these things, or then I saw. And when he gives us that verbal cue, he's telling us that he's beginning to describe a new vision that he has received. So he received a vision in Revelation chapter 1. And then Revelation chapter 2 and verse 3 is the church age, the letter to the seven churches that the, the Son of God gave to John to deliver to the churches. And then after this begins... A new vision that John receives in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. So the first time he uses it, at the beginning of verse 1, it separates his vision from the church age. The second time he uses it, at the end of verse 1, he begins to describe what he sees as God invites him into heaven and what's going to take place in Revelation chapter 6 all the way to Revelation chapter 22. Do you know that every word in the Bible is in there on purpose? When we say that we believe the Bible is the word of God and it is inspired, we don't simply mean that it inspires us or motivates us to do good things. We don't walk away and say, I'm so inspired after reading the word. We might, but that's not what is meant by the inspiration of the scriptures. What we mean is this. The Bible talks about specifically that the word of God is inspired, meaning it is breathed out by God, meaning it is perfect, meaning there are no errors. That means it's infallible, meaning that God spoke every single word through his prophets, through his apostles, that he desired to be in the word of God and the spirit superintended the entire process. And so every single word in the Bible is in there on purpose for a reason. And this is why we like to study the text of scripture line by line, verse by verse and precept upon precept, because every single word matters. Even a simple phrase like after this, two small words can, can hint to a major transition through the book of Revelation, a significant shift in our understanding of the biblical text. And so if we believe that God's word is inspired and we believe that every word of God's word is perfect, then we believe that every word was placed there on purpose. And so you might want to circle that in your Bible in verse one, after this, there in the beginning and there at the end. It's a significant transition. Secondly, we see a supreme invitation. What does John see after this? He says, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first verse, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. Supreme invitation. So John sees in his vision, a door that had been opened. In other words, he was invited to come in. The door was open. Then he hears a voice. The Bible says like a trumpet 
that invites him into heaven. And what does the voice say? Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So John catches his first glimpse of heaven. Unlike every other prophet, some were able to look into heaven. John is actually summoned into heaven. There's a contrast between John's event and every other event recorded. Some were given glimpses into heaven, but John was summoned into heaven. No prophet in all of Scripture was ever allowed to enter heaven and then to report on what he saw except the Apostle John. Many believe that Paul had an experience in what he describes as the third heaven, the dwelling of God, but he was not allowed to write about it. John was summoned into heaven and then given the privilege of writing so we can read, understand, and receive it. What's the significance of this fact? I believe this symbolizes the church of God being removed from the world after the church age and taken into heaven. I believe it signifies the beginning of a new era of human history. From this point on, through the rest of the book of Revelation until the last chapter, the church is nowhere mentioned in the book of Revelation, not until the very end. And I believe that represents the rapture of the church. What John sees now is the rest of Revelation, that which is future, unfolding before his very eyes. And this means that now we will see the judgment of the world, God's wrath against sin, the seals and the bowls and the four horsemen and all of these other things that begin to unfold. But we see them not from a human perspective. We see them from a divine perspective. John speaks of them as if he is in heaven seeing everything that happens on the earth. So here is John's invitation to come to heaven. And here's one of the things that it does for us. It helps us understand what heaven is like and what heaven is not like. It helps us understand in his description what are the characteristics and qualities of heaven and those things that might not be characteristics and qualities of heaven. Because I'll be honest with you, we have some strange notions of what heaven is going to be like. We do. We are confused. We think that some of us believe we're just going to be sitting on a cloud with wings and playing a harp. You know, you will not be an angel. All the angels that have ever going to be created have been created. And you will not, I don't care what your mama says about you, you will never. You are not an angel and you will never be an angel. But the Bible says that we experience salvation and we can sing songs of salvation and redemption, songs the angels cannot even sing. And I don't know, maybe you've been at funerals before. Be careful because you can, you can get some bad theology from preachers about heaven at a funeral. You know, you, you, you hear somebody do a funeral of a guy who uh, loved to play golf here on earth. And man, I just know right now, he's teeing off the first hole up there right next to God the Father. And he hits that drive 500 yards and it's straight down the middle. That's what he's doing in heaven right now. You ever heard that before? Or, well, I tell you what, this guy sure did like the fish. And I'm telling you, he's probably right now sitting off the dock on the crystal sea, just tossing in that lure and bringing something big back. You ever heard anything like that? Or maybe, maybe somebody liked to play sports or liked to play baseball. And so, man, I'm telling you what, he's up there with the greats now. He's playing baseball in heaven. And we begin to take all the things that we like about earth and say, well, if we like that here, then it's got to be like that up there. And we're going to take all these little things and we're going to 
say. I mean, I've heard preachers talk about somebody gardening in heaven because she loved to garden so much or baking in heaven because she loved to bake so much or I don't think Starbucks will be in heaven. So some of you may be disappointed, but we know Chick-fil-A will have like, you know, center stage in, in heaven. Think about this now. We have some strange notions of what heaven will be like. I've always wanted to know if there'll be college football in heaven. I've always wanted to know that. I don't know if there will be. I don't know if there won't be. Can there be winners and losers? Can you get a concussion by hitting somebody hard? You know, if you're in heaven and you're perfect, do you always score a touchdown or do you always make a tackle? I don't know how it all works. I have no idea, but we have to be careful that we don't take our earthly mindset and begin to lay it over what the Bible says about heaven. It's like a toddler trying to explain algebra to a college professor. It just doesn't work. And so what does the Bible teach us here? We've got to be incredibly careful because everything about heaven, listen, transcends all of our stereotypes, all of our imagination, and all of our misconceptions. Heaven is a real dimension of existence. It exists right here and right now, just beyond where we can see. And when John saw that open door into heaven, he was permitted to see a real realm, a real dimension that exists in this present time from which all the affairs of earth are governed. To understand what God is revealing, you know what we're going to have to do? We're going to have to take our own preconceived notions or desires or wants and wishes and say, I'm going to lay that to the side and I'm going to read what the Bible has to say and I want to trust what God says about heaven. I think he knows more about it than I do. The thirdly, and this is where the majority of the message will be, a supernatural description. And so we see, first of all, significant transition. That phrase after this is important. A supreme invitation. John is invited, summoned into heaven. He saw an open door. And then he begins to describe here the supernatural description. And I shouldn't have to tell you, as we read chapter 4, you probably noticed... This is the advanced Bible class on Sunday nights. You noticed a key word, the key word in chapter 4 is the word throne. If you read chapter 4, if you go back and read it again, you will notice that 14 times in chapter 4 alone the word throne is mentioned. In fact, that word is significant in the entire book of Revelation because it's mentioned 46 times throughout this book. But do the math, 46 times in 22 chapters, but 14 times in chapter 4 alone. So the key here is that whatever may happen on earth and whatever we may experience, God is on His throne and God is in complete control. Now, various teachers are going to interpret Revelation differently. Various teachers who believe different things about the end times are going to interpret Revelation in different ways. But each and every one who loves the Lord and believes the Bible says, in John chapter, in Revelation chapter 4, John is emphasizing the glory and the sovereignty of Almighty God. John is emphasizing His might and His power, that He's the King of kings and Lord of lords who sits upon the throne. And using the throne as a focal point, the rest of the chapter begins to lay out right before us. And so we're going to see... All these things around about the throne. First of all, notice this, the throne. We see this in the first part of verse 2. The Bible tells us here, as John is invited into heaven, he says, At once I was in the Spirit, and a throne stood in heaven. The throne is central to John's vision, central to this chapter. John's vision doesn't focus on the whimsical or flippant, those things that we've had questions about. No, it focuses on the might and the majesty of God. When the Bible says that John saw the throne, most theologians believe 
This throne might be symbolic, just something that represents the might and the power of God. Others believe it could be a literal piece of furniture, the throne. But the Bible says this throne, notice this, it's interesting. One version says it's standing or the throne stood. It's an interesting way to speak of a piece of furniture, right? Interesting way to speak of a throne. Most of the time we'd say the throne is seated or it's placed. The, the word is there on purpose, meaning that God's judgment and God's rule and reign over all of creation and over the entire universe is fixed and secure and nothing can shake his throne. That his rule and reign is permanent, unchanging, and that God is in complete control of the universe. His rule is fixed and unshakable. The throne. Next, notice on the throne. We see this in the latter part of verse 2 in the beginning of verse 3. Who is seated on the throne? The Bible describes it here in the latter part of verse 2. The Bible says, He saw a throne, and the one seated on the throne, he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Who is seated on the throne? Well, here in Revelation chapter 4, it is none other than God the Father. Why? Because in Revelation 5, 6, God the Son approaches the throne. In Revelation chapter 4 and verse 5, the Holy Spirit is pictured before the throne. So here we see the Trinity gathered at the throne. God the Father seated on the throne. And the Bible says in verse 3, He who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. Interesting. Jasper is a clear gem. Some commentators believe when it references jasper, it's referring to diamonds, clear, sparkling. Carnelian, or maybe your Bible says sardius, it's a red or ruby-like jewel. And so think about this for a moment. As John begins to look, he's trying to describe what he sees, and he can't even really describe it. He just begins to describe the most beautiful things he's ever seen in his life, like these pristine, sparkling, clear jewels, red jewels. Now, these two jewels were also significant in Old Testament history. Did you know that when the priests would wear the, the ephod, when they, would, when they would go into the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice to the Lord, that they would wear this breastplate, and upon the breastplate were multiple, 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. What do you know what the first stone was? The first stone was jasper, and the, sec- the last stone was carnelian. And so on the breastplate, you've got representing the firstborn Reuben and the lastborn Benjamin of the sons of Jacob. You've got God reminding us that he's faithful to his covenant to the people of Israel and that he still is the first and the last. That he's got it handled from beginning to end. He'll be faithful to you, faithful to me, faithful to his people. On the throne is God the Father. And then notice in the latter part of verse 3 and verse 4, around the throne. The Bible tells us that John sees several things around the throne. Do you see those phrases in verse 3 and verse 4? Around the throne. The Bible says first, John sees around the throne a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Green. A green rainbow. Beautiful, remarkable vision. John is not describing everything in perfect detail. He's describing something that's almost indescribable, helping us to try our best to understand what he sees. So what, have you, what do you think of when you hear the word rainbow? Now, these days, we might think of the homosexual agenda or the advances of transgenderism in our society today because they have adopted the rainbow as their symbol. The world might want you to think of that when you hear the word rainbow. 
But when God mentions a rainbow, I want you to understand God's the one who created the rainbow. And no matter who tries to co-opt it, he's the one that gets to say what it means and what it doesn't mean. So in the Bible, when the Bible refers to a rainbow, it reminds us of God's promise after the flood that he will never destroy the earth again by water. The rainbow reminds us of God's covenant with Noah. Judgment is about to fall. If you read Revelation 6 to Revelation chapter 22, judgment is coming. But the rainbow reminds us that even in the midst of judgment, God is merciful. That even in the midst of judgment and wrath, that God spares his people. The rainbow then points to the reality of God's mercy. Typically, the rainbow appears after the storm, but here in Revelation, it appears before the storm. storm of God's judgment is coming, and the rainbow reminds us of his mercy. And then the Bible says... There was something else around the throne. Look at what it says in verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Who were those 24 elders seated on the throne? Now, you're going to get, if you talk to Bible scholars and Revelation experts and prophecy junkies, you're going to get all kinds of ideas and opinions about who were these 24 elders. One of the most likely scenarios is that possibly could be a representative from the 12 tribes of Israel uh, and representatives from the 12 apostles. But even if you say that, and there are lots of questions about which tribe and, and uh, you know, did the Levites get a seat because, you know, something was divided up, their inheritance, and then, okay, well, Judas is not going to have a throne, so who gets that throne? Is it Matthias? Is it the Apostle Paul? We really don't know. And ultimately, you can spend all your time trying to figure out who's seated on the 24 thrones, the elders around the throne, that you're going to miss the point. And here's the point. Most believe that it is representatives from the Old Testament and the New Testament gathered around, the elders gathered around, but here's what the Bible is trying to teach us. Twelve is the number of completion, okay? You read throughout Scripture, twelve is a significant number. And so God is trying to remind us that His redemption, that His work, that His salvation is totally complete, that it is finished and it is done. And that these elders seated around the throne, while we don't exactly know who they are, most believe they're not angels, that they are human representatives, and they're wearing white robes because they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Though their sin was scarlet, they were washed whiter than snow, and they have crowns, and their crowns are the rewards that they receive through the judgment and now they're worshiping and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. So who were who were the 24 elders? It's okay to say we don't exactly know. And if you'd like to, you can write a book about it and tell everyone who you think it is because a bunch of people have done that. But ultimately what it reminds us of is that God has accomplished his work of redemption throughout history. Then notice from the throne, verse 5. John tells us that from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. These signs represent the storm of God's judgment that is on the way. His wrath that is about to be poured out upon the earth. Flashes of lightning, rumblings of thunder associated with God's presence in the book of Exodus. They're also associated with God's judgment during the tribulation. Just a couple of pages over in Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 8 and verse 5, we see something significant. The angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. 
In Revelation chapter 11 and verse 19, we see again this represented. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. The ark of His, right, of His covenant was seen within the temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. The rainbow signified the storm that was about to come. And here we're seeing this flash of lightning, this thunder. It represents the judgment of God that's being poured out upon the earth. The Bible tells us that John here sees what's, what's happening and what comes from the throne. Flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder. John gives us a preview of divine wrath. Next, notice before the throne. We see this in the first part of verse 6. Here the Bible tells us that John sees seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Now, John has already identified these seven lamps. He's identified these are the seven spirits of God. Now remember, this doesn't mean that there are seven Holy Spirits. It is a description of the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit. We see this in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2. Listen how the Holy Spirit is described. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. Here it is. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. Here we're giving a description. A description of the Holy Spirit. And so what does John see? John sees the Holy Spirit of God before the throne. Also John saw something else before the throne. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. A sea of glass like crystal. The crystal sea symbolizes the holiness and the righteousness of God. God is preparing to judge the nations because they have rejected His only Son, their Savior. Before the throne. Next, on each side of the throne. Verse 6, the latter part, the beginning of verse 8. Now, this gets interesting. Here's something that we have a hard time identifying with or understanding. The Bible says that on each side of the throne, John saw living creatures. And they are described as the four living creatures. This is the first time they're mentioned in the book of Revelation, but you're going to see them appear and reappear over and over again. They ought to be linked with Isaiah's seraphim and Ezekiel's cherubim because they are extremely similar in nature. So whatever Isaiah describes in Isaiah 6 and Ezekiel describes the seraphim and the cherubim, they can be linked to the four living creatures. They are angelic beings. Look at the latter part of verse 6 and to verse 8. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Look at this now, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes around and within. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now this is interesting. I want you to remember that John is trying to put in human language, which is virtually impossible to describe. John is trying to describe to us something that he sees that he has a very difficult time describing. And so, do we know exactly what these are and exactly what they look like? He's very careful to say it had a face that looked like a man, a face that looked like an eagle, a face that looked like an ox. And so, what's happening here? Well, the Bible tells us they are full of eyes in the front and behind, around and within. They're full of eyes. It gives the impression of their exceeding knowledge of God. 
Those faces, the lion, the ox, the man, the eagle, they suggest qualities that belong to the Lord. Royal power, strength, spirituality, swiftness of action. Each of the creatures that are mentioned are chief of its species. Together they embody and they reflect the nature and the character of God. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 2, we're reminded of Isaiah's vision of the Lord. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. The Bible says here they have six wings. Speaks of Exactly what we see in the book of Isaiah, around the throne and on each side of the throne. Look at how they're described. They're around the throne and on each side of the throne. Most scholars believe then that they are surrounding the throne. Four living creatures, one on one side, one on the other, one in the front, and one in the back. They're closer to the throne than even the 24 elders. The four living creatures will appear again throughout the book of Revelation. That's on each side of the throne. And then notice... Toward the throne. What do the four living creatures do? John tells us in verse 8 that day by day they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It is no wonder that that hymn, Holy, 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 is one of the classics of the faith that is still sung today because it is a song that we will sing for all of eternity. All the angels and the four living creatures and the elders gather around the throne and they say, Holy, holy, holy. In other words, they are constantly worshiping, constantly praising and glorifying the Lord. Holy, holy, holy. You know the holiness of God. That's the only attribute that's repeated three times in the Bible over and over and over again. God is perfectly holy. God is set apart from sin. God is righteous altogether. The Bible says He is the Lord God Almighty. You might want to circle that. Almighty. It's used nine times in Revelation. It represents the might and the power of God. He is the eternal God who was and is and is to come. Existed in eternity past. Exists now in eternity present and will exist for all of eternity. The Bible tells us something interesting. The four living creatures are not the only ones that bow down and worship the Lord. Look what the Bible says in verse 9. All the way to the end of the chapter. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him, the four living creatures, when they give glory and honor to the one who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, those that are seated around the throne, they fall down before Him who's seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So when the four living creatures worship the Lord, the 24 elders follow suit. When the four living creatures say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the 24 elders cast their thrones at His feet and they say, worthy are you, O Lord. Why? Look at what it says. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Isn't it interesting that the first book of the Bible affirms that God is indeed the creator and the last book of the Bible affirms that God is indeed the creator of all things. And as a result, He is worthy of our worship and our praise. What do the 24 elders do? The 24 elders cast their crowns before 
the Lord to acknowledge that he alone is worthy. The word worthy is axios. It was used by the Roman emperor. When he, walk, when he walked in a triumphal procession, they would say to the emperor, you are worthy of all of this praise, of all the pomp, of all the circumstance, of all the glory. One day there will be a king that surpasses them all and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he is worthy. This song anticipates that paradise lost in Genesis chapter 3 is finally restored when God makes all things new, wipes away every tear and sets all things right. One day we'll gather around with the angels, with the elders and sing, worthy are you Lord. More than just a glimpse of heaven and a glimpse of the future. This is a remarkable description. Think of the colors that are just mentioned right here. The carnelian, the jasper, emerald, the rainbow. All of this beauty. What this passage reveals to us and what it reveals about the future, it ought to shake us to our very core. I'm reminded of a hymn, an old hymn of the faith. It goes like this. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. In light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. How blessed, how glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light. Thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render, O oh, help us to see. Tis only thy splendor, the splendor of light, hideth thee. One day, when we get to heaven, we will see this unfold before our very eyes. And I bet... Just like they did for John, words would fail us to describe the beauty and the wonder and the majesty. This is just a glimpse of heaven.